that's about fitting for where we are in the year. Um, excited to transition into our time uh, considering uh, world religions together tonight. We're going to turn our attention to um, world religions, and we're going to start with the uh, religion of Islam. So if you have a copy of God's word there in front of you, uh, the portion of scripture that I would want you to turn to right now for us to begin our time together is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Make sure that I know. Isaiah 9, sorry. I just want to repeat Sunday morning again. Those of you who were there uh, will know that I took us to the wrong text on Sunday morning towards the end of our time together. So let's make sure we get this right. So Isaiah chapter number 9, we'll be looking at verses uh, 6 and 7 to start our time together. Uh, This is different than how I normally preach to you all, um, and you'll see how this will play out in our time together this evening. Um, But I I want to uh, do my best to present to you uh, the religion of Islam as best I know how. So if you would, uh, stand with me. We'll read God's word together. And we'll dive into this study. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. This is God's word. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom... To order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is God's word, and we should praise him that we get to even read it together this evening. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we come to you humbly admitting that the fact that we are tempted often to boast in things we have no right to boast in, to take credit for things we have no right to take credit for. Sometimes in our apparent zeal for you or what we believe to be zeal for you, we can be prideful about what it means to be a Christ follower. And we begin to boast in our organizations and we begin to boast in our churches and our denominational structures and our perceived power and yet forget to boast in whom we should be boasting in. And that is what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. So as we turn our attention to uh, the religion of Islam and the Muslims that practice it, Father, we think of the fact that tonight uh, close to 2 billion people claim this world religion or more. We're aware of the fact that it's the fastest growing religion in our world. So help us to be charitable and kind and Speak the truth in love. Think of our friends around the city tonight, Father. No doubt many of them will step to pulpits to encourage one another, hopefully proclaim the gospel. We want to pray for them, want to lift them up. Think of our friends at First Baptist Ash Grove. Ask that you would continue to help them as they seek to minister to their city and the people in that area. Think of our friends at Park Crest and their desire to reach a different side of the city. And Father, we just ask that you would allow these churches to strengthen 
in their ministries, and may they proclaim the gospel boldly. Be with us now, though, as we turn our attention to this world religion and what your word has to say in response. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Tonight, uh, we turn, obviously, to our study of other religious groups rather than cults. And over the next few weeks, we'll discuss the major world religions in comparison to Christianity. Tonight, we'll start with Islam and we'll move to study uh, Buddhism, then Hinduism, and then we'll wrap up our series, Lord willing, the first week of December, looking at Roman Catholicism. Tonight, what I'm hoping to do in our time together would be to cut through our cultural bias of Islam and get to foundational beliefs. In other words, what I want to do is try and bypass the rhetoric of Fox News and CNN, of what cultural critics and others might say about what Islam is and what it is not. Uh, far too often, our baseline understanding of another world religion is based on the extremes of what we see. And just as we would not want what it looks like to be part of a Baptist church to be equated with Westboro Baptist or uh, even Stephen Anderson and his group in Arizona, I think we need to get to what does it look like for the average Muslim to practice Islam. Now, I, I want you to hear this clearly. I'm not denying the radical Islamic state that exists in our world. I'm not denying that radical terrorism takes place. I'm not, I'm not denying any of that. I'm not saying that that's not important or that we shouldn't. And don't run out of here saying Dave Botts doesn't think radical, radical Islamic practice is a problem in our country. That would be a lie. But all of us in the room would have to agree that for the most part, our knowledge and understanding of Islam is primarily based around that rhetoric. And while I would like to make the claim that that's unhelpful because of the fact that the person who is shopping at your local Walmart probably didn't walk in there with C4 strapped to their chest. And while that may seem inconsequential, there's a greater threat strapped to them and that threat is this that if someone who practices the religion of islam or identifies himself as a muslim never repents of their sins and believes in jesus christ regardless of what they do as a radical terrorist or not their eternal destiny is the same it's a eternal conscious torment in a place called hell and we need to be burdened for people who would spend their eternal life separated from God forever. So with that in mind, we're going to turn our attention tonight to what is the foundational work. You're going to notice tonight that I have uh, no sermon point slides necessarily because for this particular talk, this particular sermon, what I would like to do is interact heavily with what it means to be someone who practices Islam. So to set the stage for you tonight, here is the case. You will have to, to use a technical legal term, adjudicate it. You'll have to rule on it. Here's the case. It's grace versus works. This is the baseline for what we're talking about tonight. One religion, Christianity, that is founded in grace. And one religion, Islam, that is founded on works. 
Islam is clear that the basic problem of mankind is sin. And the way to fix this particular problem is adherence to Sharia. And I want us to get away from understanding Sharia law as it is extreme forms. Because that allows us to bypass the major practicing components. Yes, there are incredibly dangerous elements to Sharia law. But to understand Sharia law only in the context of extreme rules and regulations is to completely misunderstand the religion of Islam. In fact, when I began to study this, I began to understand that a lot of my cultural bias, this is a word that we throw around a lot today, but a lot of my cultural bias was going to cause me to brush past a lot of what I thought I knew about this particular world religion and not actually address the major beliefs. And I would just say this is a, a short little plug. If anything from tonight's sermon intrigues you at all about studying more on this topic, I think you would be wise to make your way over to Redeemed Books and pick up every copy of any book written by a man named Nabil Qureshi. Nabil went home to be with the Lord last year uh, with stomach cancer, but prior to that, his ministry was coming alongside of Ravi Zacharias and speaking specifically on the issue of Islam. If there's anyone who writes clearer, more helpfully on Islam, I would question you to find them because he's readable, he's not technical, he's an incredibly helpful. So he would pick up a book like Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, or No God But One. Those would be books that I would encourage you just to read his testimony, to understand how this works. But in the religion of Islam, Sharia refers to living according to the way. And inside of Sharia are five paramount practices that you must, regardless of your devotion, regardless of who you are, regardless of if you're the, uh, to go culturally date myself from the lowest practice practicing Muslim to the Ayatollah Khomeini, you have to adhere to these five things. Number one, Shahada is something you must proclaim regularly. That would be there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Every day you must pray the five daily prayers. You also must fast during the month of Ramadan. You must give alms. And you must undertake a pilgrimage to Mecca. These are the five core components of Islam. And so we're going to make our way through each one of these and respond accordingly. And that's why I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's start with the first claim. Shahada is the phrase that refers to this which anyone practicing Islam must adhere to. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger this must be confessed in fact to not confess it is to be uh, guilty of blasphemy and to be put to death so if you are going to practice islam you must confess the shahada christianity teaches though that god is one in essence expressing himself in three persons father son spirit you're like david here we go another lecture on the trinity i promise you No lecture here. 
Father, Son, and Spirit. But one of the helpful things to note that in contrast to Islam, Christianity does not believe in a sub-divine messenger. Understand this about Islam. God is Allah, and Allah is God. One person is God, and Muhammad is his messenger. Muhammad carries the revelation of Allah to the Muslim people. The Bible teaches, however, that Jesus is the only way to God, not through a subdivine messenger. If you practice Islam, if you are a Muslim, you believe that Muhammad is a great man. You believe that he is a worthy prophet. But there is one thing you do not confess, and that is that Muhammad is God. He's just a messenger. And what Muhammad has come to do is to carry a correction to where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob have erred. And a more important, albeit good teacher, a great moral man, according to Islam, Jesus needs to be corrected as well. And this is what Muhammad is going to do. He's going to correct the false teaching of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Jesus. Remember, though, that these scriptures, the ones that have been inspired by God, Christians would argue, the ones that, as prophets spoke, the very words of God to his people, there is no mere human being that is coming to deliver a message of repentance and faith and belief. No, friends, that's Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 9, I want to put together an Old Testament and New Testament response to this Shahadah, and that would be this, that the Old and New Testament points to a coming Messiah in the Old Testament, and the New Testament reveals who that Messiah will be. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah, a prophet, announces that there is one that is going to come and that the Old Testament believers must put their faith in him alone. Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 6 again. This is what Isaiah says. We love to read this around Christmas time. I'm just beating us to the punch. Hey, look, it's after Halloween. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This particular verse is read constantly. If you remember a few years ago, our pastor went through a whole sermon series, breaking down what is it to be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Who is this that Isaiah is speaking of? To whom is Isaiah proclaiming? Is he talking about Allah? Is he talking about a messenger named Muhammad? I would graciously say to my Muslim friends, no. Because I would take them to Luke chapter 2. I would encourage you to flip over there. Luke chapter 2. Consider who this particular passage is speaking of. Every Christmas time uh, in our family, a tradition is on New Year's Eve that we'll, or excuse me, 
know, it might not be a bad tradition to start doing that this year. On Christmas Eve, we gather together and we read this particular passage. And I was just thinking about this in light of Isaiah chapter 9. Th- Isaiah chapter 9 points to this particular text. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us to anticipate this one coming. And Luke tells us who it was. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Or probably one of the better word choices in the King James, they were sore afraid. Because when angels show up, to quote Al Mohler, it's not something cute. It's terrifying, and you probably wet yourself. These particular angels show up on the scene, and what do they declare? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and so in front of the shepherds we go from one angel to a heavenly host, which to go to a technical term, that's a whole lot of angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away, the shepherds caught their breath. No, just kidding, that's not in the text. But from them into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. All those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Here is the contrast between Christianity and Islam. God, expressing himself in three persons, sends his firstborn son, to redeem humanity. He does not send a mere human prophet to foretell how you can hold on to some rules and gain eternal life. So these five things you must confess. You must believe. Number one, you have to believe there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is is his prophet or his messenger. Number two, you have to pray the five daily prayers. There are five daily prayers inside of the religion of Islam. And for those of you taking notes, I don't think you're going to be able to spell these accurately from my pronunciation. To anyone who would ever listen to this or ever call me out, I'm doing the best I can. We start the day off with remembrance of God. This is the Fajr prayer in the morning. And then shortly after noon, to remember God and seek his guidance, Muslims pray the Duhur prayer. 
Then in the late afternoon, remembering God and his greater meaning for your life, the Yasar prayer is prayed. Then at sundown, we pray, the Islam prays the Mahdrib prayer. And then the Yisha prayer before bed, a prayer of thanks to God. Now, again, at each time that those prayers are prayers, prayed, the Shahada is confessed. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. It's worth remembering that praying these five prayers is necessary for salvation. In fact, much like our uh, understanding of Roman Catholicism, to be a Muslim who does not regularly pray these five prayers every day is considered a lapsed Muslim. And it's worse than being a lapsed Catholic, if you, if you even know those terms. They're to point east towards Mecca and pray. Now, Christians believe that prayer is a response of a grateful heart and reliance on God for provision. Flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus explains and teaches what it looks like to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, he lines out what it looks like for a Christian to pray. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus makes it evidently clear that prayer, or praying repetitively, is not necessary for salvation, but it's the overflow of one enamored with a holy God who provides everything that we could ever hope for and ask. Furthermore, Paul actually amps up this idea in 1 Thessalonians 5, suggesting that the Christian should pray without ceasing. For a constant attitude of prayerfulness towards the Lord. Devotion to prayer is required by Islam, whereas in Christianity, it is an overflow of a thankful heart and one that's enraptured by God. Which begs this question at this point. Here are people who believe that by praying five times a day, they're securing their eternal destiny. And yet Christians whose secure destiny has been settled and is secured in the Father's hand, if you remember our discussion last week regarding security of salvation, struggle to pray over their meals longer than 30 seconds, struggle to be regularly in a habitual prayer life. And once again, we look at people who believe something completely contrary to what we believe, and we find that their devotion outpaces our own. As I was studying this, I thought I'd give my left arm for Christians who are half as committed to Christianity as they are as Muslims are to Islam. Probably 
give both of them. It's challenging. When you, you, you study this, it's challenging because this is all false. It's all not true. Yet, the most conservative statistical research suggests that probably in the next 15 to 20 years, Islam will outpace Christianity in actual numbers. It already outpaces it in physical growth. Number three, if you're a Muslim, you must fast during the month of Ramadan. Um, this, the, the feast of, or the uh, month of Ramadan celebrates uh, Muhammad's first revelation that he gets from Allah. During this time, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. And during Ramadan, spiritual blessings are multiplied for practicing Muslims. Now, the Islamic practice is based off a lunar calendar. I know this is getting really technical here. I want to make this clear because people are like, don't necessarily understand how it's different here than it is there. But from the first sighting of the crescent moon for the next 30 days is the, the celebration of Ramadan. So next April, from April 23rd to May 23rd in 2020, the U.S. will be in their season of Ramadan. So for a whole month, here are people who are fasting. Now, there's a lot of debate and speculation, depending on the seriousness of which you take Ramadan, what takes place after sundown is up in the air. Some will argue that Muslims party basically from sundown to sunrise and then fast from sunrise to sunset. Depending on the seriousness of which you are practicing Islam, uh, that will determine the seriousness with which you take Ramadan. But nevertheless, even if you're, the again, the least committed Muslim, at least from sunrise to sunset, you're not eating drinking and you're not really partaking in anything other than reading the Quran the five daily prayers reciting the Shahada you're devoted Jesus makes it clear that the motivation though for fasting for Christians is not for salvation or recognition from other people but intimacy with the Father look a little bit further down in the passage that we just read we'll pick up in verse 16 Jesus says this, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be, or to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But your Father who is in secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Christianity teaches this about fasting. That it's done in secret. So no Instagram filtered pictures of fasting Fridays. And hashtags about how hungry you are, but you've given up food for Jesus. In fact, some Christians uh, practice and observe a season of Lent. Giving up something to remind themselves that they go from uh, Ash Wednesday to Good Friday. Again, though, not drawing attention to yourself, not for your salvation, 
But intimacy, closeness, being together with the Father, that's the purpose for Christians of fasting. Number four. So we've got the Shahada, we've got the five daily prayers, fasting during the month of Ramadan, and then we have giving alms. Muslims are instructed that they must partake in the zakat, which is required giving. Oh, to be in a Baptist church that required giving. Those people would pitch a fit. The amount given is 2.5% of all savings and revenue earned, as well as 5 to 10% of one's harvest for the year. Further, Muslims are to participate in the sadaq, which is voluntary giving above the zakat. So you have to give at least 2.5%, and then about 5 to 10% more, and then you're supposed to give more than you have. So just to be charitable, about 12.5% of everything you make for the year. And a little bit higher than a tithe. In Malachi 3.10, another passage, we see the expectation of 10% tithe. And then in the New Testament, where everybody balks at this idea that the tithe is carried over, yet none of them want to give at the level that the New Testament expects or requires of right around what historical critics will tell us is 30%. That's what is expected inside of Christianity. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But again, Christianity makes a distinct claim about giving that is different than Islam. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse number 6. This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So the biblical standard is one that gives committed to the Lord, but not grudgingly or of necessity. I was talking with some students prior to church about finances, doing premarital counseling. Um, and one of the last things that I said to them as they got ready to leave the room is I said, look, I understand that in your life, you may not always be members of Crossway. So do me a favor, if you go to a church where a pastor knows the amount of money that you give, don't join. There's no reason on earth why I should have any understanding of how much money you give to this church. Uh, we have a covenant that all of our adult leaders and all of our small group leaders, our band uh, signs that says they're going to give 10% of their income to the church. And I tell them every time before they sign it, look, this is an expectation. I think it's a healthy expectation. But I don't go into anybody's office and go, I want to see the giving records of these people. I don't want to see tax returns. I don't want any, I don't want to see any of it. Because this is what I do. I just pray, Lord, if they're not giving how they're supposed to be giving, 
you get them. You get them. Because if he gets them, it's going to be a whole lot better than I'm like, hey, uh, notice that you're a little bit short in your giving this month. I'm not the IRS. I'm not a bill collector. I'm not the milkman coming for past money. God makes it clear in his word that there is an expectation that Christians give. But they give the right way with the right heart attitude. For those of you who are being stingy with God, I have no idea who you are. So when you're like, I can't believe Dave Bonnet talks about me like that. I don't know who you are. When you go to your friends to complain that I'm talking about you, they can remind you, he has no idea. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Give your money to the Lord, you tightwad. That's what you should say to them. interesting you know i wonder how much more seriously we would all be committed to christianity if something that we did contributed to our salvation which begs the question if the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary why we aren't more grateful lastly number five right so we've got there is no God but Allah and the prophet is Muhammad. There is uh, the five daily prayers, fasting during the month of Ramadan, giving the alms, and then this one, the pilgrimage to Mecca. All Muslims must participate in the Hajjah at least once in their lifetime. And this is a pilgrimage to Mecca where Muslims perform different rituals. They must Walk counterclockwise around the Kaaba, which is the cube-shaped building for prayer that is in Mecca that all Muslims face to pray. Then they must trot or jog between uh, two hills of the Safa and the Marah. They have to drink from the Zamrim well, go to the plains of Mount Arafat to stand in vigil, spend a night in the plain of Muzdalifa, and perform a symbolic stoning of the devil at three pillars. Following this, they attend the three-day festival of Ay al-Adah. And again, this operates off of the Muslim lunar calendar. The next time that this will take place is July 28th through the 2nd, 2020. If you do not do this before you die, you are not saved. It doesn't matter if you live in San Bernardino, California, or you're the next town over from Mecca. You have to go. And if you don't, you will die, and you will not spend eternity in paradise. Really, there is no Christian response to this, because in Christianity, there's no requirement that you have to go to Jerusalem. There's no uh, requirement that you have to go to the empty tomb. In fact, there's a lot of speculation about where the empty tomb is. Uh, there's... No, no requirement that you have to go to Bethlehem, you have to go to Nazareth, you have to go to Galilee, that you have to go to, man, you don't have to go be baptized in the Dead Sea. Like, there's no requirements like this. Christianity has no requirements. And the primary reason that I would argue that Christianity doesn't have these requirements is because we serve a living Savior. One that is not dead. One that does not require a pilgrimage because he's worth serving where we are today. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. And he's all-knowing. 
friends, you don't have to take a trip across the walkway, the crossway. You don't have to go across a bridge, a tunnel. You don't have to rent a boat, rent a plane, rent a car. You don't have to go anywhere to be saved. You don't have to go from point A to point B physically. You have to go from point A to point B spiritually. This would be the Christian's response. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You know where I'm going with this. Grace versus works. This is what we started with tonight, and this will be our ending point. Paul writes this, For by grace are you saved, have you, you have been saved through faith, and that out of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christianity teaches this. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, because if you could earn it, you could lose it. And that's why we see all of this striving based around man-centered objectives. And I look around the room tonight, and for the, ma- the most majority of the people here, I think you know this. But for the person in here who's a guest, or you've maybe heard this all your life, but it's never gotten below the surface. You cannot do anything to save yourself. It's the free, merited grace of God towards you that you're even able to come here. You must repent of your sins, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the perfect spotless sacrifice for sin that was not in you. That he was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later he rose again, defeating all of the obstacles towards our salvation. That's what's required to have eternal life. Not confessing something over and over again, not praying a certain amount of times, not making a trip or fasting a certain time of the year or giving a certain percentage of your money. None of that will save you. But here's the cold, hard reality tonight. Over 2 billion people in our world think that it will. And if we think that Christianity is like explosive and growing and changing the world around us, it is. And I don't want to pour cold water on that. But to try and sit here bury our heads in the sand and say, Islam's just another world religion. Don't really need to worry about it. It's kind of like whatever. It's just going to be a blip on the radar. Friends, it's not. According to the Pew Data Center, it is the fastest growing religion and it shows no sign of stopping. And I would argue that the reason why it is is because put them next to each other, it seems like from a surface level that Muslims seem to be far more serious about seeing other people come to know Muslim Christians are actually serious in coming to worship Christ. And you can look around the room and point in demographics and do all these different things, and I think that's perfectly fine for another time and another place. 
But for the sake of what we're trying to do here in our college ministry, the question becomes this. What are we trying to do to reach the people around us for God's glory and honor? Sure, we may not have an abundance of Muslims living in our city, in our town. But if you notice tonight, and it was intentional, when Caleb prayed for our two unreached people groups, there weren't two unreached people groups in far distant lands, in countries halfway around the globe. There were a people group in St. Louis and a people group in Nashville. Seven hours away, inside of a radius, two unreached people groups sit in the most evangelical place in the world. I'm saying let's all load up the vans and go to St. Louis and reach that people in Nashville. I'm not saying that. I think that's a noble and worthy cause. But I don't think that you're going to get really passionate about reaching people in St. Louis or Nashville or Southeast Asia or Northwest Africa or Greenland or Scandinavia or anywhere like that until you become passionate about reaching people who are in your own backyard. Which begs the question, if he's transformed our lives, why don't we want to tell other people how their lives are? 